Several years ago, actually back in 2013, uh, Great Britain's Food Standards Agency closed a slaughterhouse and a processing plant after investigators found horse carcasses had been used to make burgers and kebabs labeled as beef and sold all over Great Britain. Uh, a month later, some of you may remember that story from several years ago, but about a month later, the Swedish furniture giant IKEA was drawn into this food labeling scandal as authorities said they had detected horse meat in frozen meatballs that were labeled as beef and pork and then sold in 13 countries across Europe. Shortly after that European horse meat scandal broke, officials in Iceland had decided to run tests to make sure the same thing wasn't happening in Iceland. And uh, fortunately, the Icelandic meat inspectors didn't find any horse meat, but one brand of locally produced beef pie, as it was called, left the inspectors a little confused. It not only contained no beef, it contained no meat at all. Uh, it appeared to instead to contain some kind of a vegetable product, and one of the lead inspectors said that was a very peculiar thing. It was labeled as beef pie, so it actually should be beef pie. Now, there are probably all sorts of packaging and labeling issues that we never know much about, uh, but the ones that we do know about certainly can be concerning because uh, we want, number one, we want a safe, reliable food supply and we want to get what we're expecting to get. And so correct and honest labeling is important. And when we hear stories like that, it kind of makes us wonder if all our labels uh, are what they say they are. You know, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we get, we get labeled all, all sorts of things, some good, some not so good. But, you know, we do carry the label Christian or Bible believer or follower of Jesus. And what do you suppose people should expect to find in our lives? As we continue on in our study in Philippians, where we've been, this is, I think, week number four in our study of, of Philippians, we see a very good answer to that question. <clears throat> we, have, we have a label, and that label has been assigned to us by our relationship to the Lord Jesus. And the first question I ask you today is, are we living up to it? Throughout chapter 1 of Philippians, we've seen some very personal and in some ways some emotional writing with the Apostle Paul dealing with the thought of dying and being with Jesus and, and how great that would be against how he still feels needed by these young churches whom he can help even as a prisoner in Rome awaiting trial and possibly death. And we've seen how everything for Paul revolves around the advancement of the gospel. The first 26 verses of chapter 1 that we've worked our way through in the last three weeks have been about Paul, about what he's doing and how he's doing and what he's been praying for regarding the Philippians and, and some of his struggles. And it's been, in, in many ways, the, 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 uh, the, the introduction to Paul's letter. In verse 27, which is where we'll start today, Paul kind of changes directions. Uh, Paul has, for the most part, finished speaking about his life. He'll mention a few other things along the way, but he has, for the most part, finished speaking about his life. And now he begins to write about the other pressing issues that he wants to address with his dear friends. 
The next few verses serve as kind of an introduction to the rest of the book. We're going to look at it in depth and kind of dissect the phrases as we go along. We're just going to look at four verses today, starting in chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 30. So let's read those. I'll read a lot. You can follow along as I read Philippians 1, starting in verse 27, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God." For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. The first word there in verse 27, only. Paul begins this new section, this, this single word, this, this attention getter. It would be like us saying, okay, listen very carefully, or, or pay attention now. And then saying the most important thing in all of life is, you know, and Paul writes often long lists. He gives a number of commands. He puts together a series of ideas. He writes some of the longest sentences. We've sort of joked about that over the years, talking about, you know, Paul starts a sentence and nine verses later there's a period. I mean, so he writes these long clause after clause, sentence after sentence, list after list. But here it's it's very short. He does something a little different. He says, only, and then he gives one statement. So I think we should sit up and pay close attention because what's about to come is a lens intended to bring all of life into focus, this perspective through which we can understand our entire reason for being here as followers of Jesus. He says, only, let your conduct be worthy of, of the gospel of Christ. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Reading a great commentary this last week and looking at Logos, that great Bible study computer program, if you're interested in one, Logos is a great program. I see this phrase, let your conduct, is all one word in the Greek text. It's a, it's, it's, it's a verb, it's all one word, and, and this word only appears twice in the New Testament. Once here, of course, and then it appears in this exact form in in Acts chapter 23, where where Dr. Luke is actually recording something that Paul said. And so I I see there are some newer paraphrases that kind of express this verb, live like a citizen. I thought, "Mm, that's very interesting. So we start digging a little bit further, and we find that this word that Paul uses here it's, it, it's a word, it, it's a, I'll give it to you in Greek, it's palatuomai, which I know means absolutely nothing to us in English. But if you lived in Philippi in the first century, it would be a very, very powerful verb. It has a number of interesting meanings in it and uses in its various verb form. It means to be a citizen, or to administer civil affairs, or to become a citizen, or to behave as a citizen, or to pledge yourself to a specific code of behavior because you're a citizen. 
which is why Paul, why it's translated in the New King James here, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, Philippi was more than a city ruled by the Roman Empire. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a highly privileged status in the Roman Empire. Many of the people who lived there were undoubtedly Roman citizens, and the ones who weren't Roman citizens still enjoyed a special status because they lived in Philippi, and that that provided them with some rights that everyone in the empire would not have. And so if a person were traveling and and someone might ask them where they're from, they would very proudly say, I am a resident of Philippi. Oh, okay. So we have a few things that you probably don't have because we are a Roman colony. You say, were they really that proud? Probably. Just like we do. Where are you from? I'm from Valir. I'm from... Heartbeat. I am from Birch Creek. I had to laugh about this once. We were tra- traveling, speaking in the state of Ohio, and was asking a, a fellow, he and his wife, we were, actually we were, were having dinner with him, asking where he was from. Well, I've lived in this little town all my life, he said. And I said, your wife too? Oh no, she's from so-and-so. And it, it, the place he's talking about is like three miles down the road. <laughs> Thinking, oh come on, you know, really, really. We're all that way, you know, are, are, are we not? So, so if, if you're traveling in, in, uh, in the Roman Empire, you would definitely tell people, I am a resident of Philippi, and we are a Roman colony. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen. And at, at Philippi, we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, Paul and Silas were accused by crimes uh, of, of some, or by some slave owners whose income they had really messed up, they had sort of indirectly interfered with because they had cast a demon out of a fortune-telling slave girl. And so her owners were very irritated that now she couldn't tell fortunes for anybody and they were losing a lot of money. So they're the ones who stirred up the lynch mob who kind of resulted in Paul and Silas being beaten and thrown in jail. We, uh, we, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's in uh, Acts chapter 16. And, you know, historians tell us that, that only about 10% of the population of the Roman Empire were Roman citizens. And among the rights of a citizen were freedom from beatings without a trial, the right to be tried before the emperor rather than in a local court of law, the right to not be executed by crucifixion. That's why Paul was beheaded when he was martyred rather than crucified. He was a Roman citizen. And when the local authorities in Philippi sent orders the next morning, remember they got beaten, thrown in jail, you remember the story, singing in the jail at midnight and all those things, and, uh, and the Philippian jailer comes to Christ. The next morning, the magistrates send orders into the prison to let those guys go. I'm sure they've learned their lesson. We beat them. We threw them in a miserable jail overnight. And, you know, I'm sure they, I'm sure they won't do that again. And Paul sends a message back to the people coming to release them. Oh, no, oh, no, he said, we, we aren't, we aren't leaving this jail. I want the magistrates to come down here and get us personally because, he says, We are Roman citizens, and you have beaten us and jailed us without a trial. They send word back to the magistrates. You can read the story there in Acts 16. They were scared to death. Oh, oh, no, yikes, what what have we done? You didn't do that to Roman citizens. 
You know, you, you, don't, you don't beat them without a trial. Yeah, I mean, they just, I mean, they, 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 they had certain rights, and here we are in Philippi, and so the magistrates come down, and profuse apologies follow, and they request, will you please just quietly leave our city, and we will not hurt you anymore. Please don't, please don't tell on us, basically, they're saying. Some years later, Paul was giving his personal testimony and a verbal defense before a, this, this violent mob in the city of Jerusalem. That story's in Acts 22. You can read it sometime. He was, he was rescued from the mob by Roman soldiers who, who were there nearby. And when the Romans wanted to find out what was going on, if some big mob event happened or somebody got arrested for something, and they wanted to find out what was going on, the way they would interrogate a person, they didn't put him in a little room and ask him questions. They stripped him of their clothing, tied him to a post, and beat on him with rods or whips until you told them the truth about what happened. And as they were tying Paul to the post... He says to the Roman centurion, Is it lawful for you to beat a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? The centurion says, No, but you know, I'm, I'm a Roman citizen and I paid a very high price to buy my citizenship. You could actually buy Roman citizenship, very expensive. Paul looks at him and said, I was free born. Meaning my parents were Roman citizens. I was born a Roman citizen. And I'll interpret here a little bit. You can read the story. The centurion basically says, Cut him down, fellas. No, we don't beat Roman citizens without a trial. Paul was immediately untied and let go. My, my, my point being in this little rabbit trail that, that we're running is that Roman citizenship was rare and highly valued. And, and it afforded you privileges that 90% of the people in the empire did not have. Roman citizenship placed you in an elite group. It gave you a sense of identity, this sense of belonging. It was a somewhat exclusive club. You, you, you not only had special privileges, special legal privileges, you were expected to live up to your identity. You were to conduct yourself in a certain way because you were a Roman citizen. You had civic responsibilities. People had expectations of you. And all of Paul's readers in the church at Philippi, as residents of a Roman colony, they, and many of them probably citizens of Rome, they totally understood that. So when Paul says to them, only palatuamai, live like a citizen, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. They totally got the word picture. So Paul, Paul grabs a hold of this concept of citizenship, belonging and privilege and responsibility, and, and he uses that as the main verb in his sentence to describe how we should conduct ourselves. So he takes it a, a step further than just civic national citizenship, and he combines that citizenship idea with the gospel. Later on in Philippians chapter 3, which we'll come to in a number of weeks, Paul says, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and he uses the same word in its noun form. So, so do you see how all of this comes together? Above all, he says, only, number one priority, be a citizen of heaven. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You are a citizen of heaven. You are, uh, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are representing the gospel of Christ. You have eternal heavenly blessings and earthly responsibilities 
Another interesting word, the very next little phrase, he says, uh, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, the word worthy is, is the Greek word axios. We get our English word axle from it. It means to balance a beam. You all know, all of you guys have done enough driving and farm work to know if, 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 if something falls off one end of your axle, you have major problems. Okay? Because the axle is just the balancing beam to hold the two sides together to do what they're supposed to do on each end of the axle. And so when Paul says, walk worthy, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he is saying, balance out what you've been blessed with. Balance out our eternal heavenly privileges with our earthly responsibilities for the gospel of Christ. So, so what does it look like to conduct ourselves worthy in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? And does that match the way you and I have lived in the last seven days? You know, I think we've got our citizenship issues or our, 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 our citizenship identity kind of all messed up. We see ourselves first as a citizen of our country and our culture. And we are deeply influenced by that. And so we tend to see ourselves as becoming citizens of heaven eventually when we die. Paul says, no, no, no. You're a citizen of heaven right now. And that's your number one identity. See, our, our, our values and our perspectives are, are deeply shaped by our present citizenship. And, and so not what we, it's not usually shaped by something we see as being afar off. And so we think we should be strong and independent as Americans. We should be comfortable financially. We should own all the latest technologies. We shouldn't suffer. We should be protected physically. We should be treated well by our government. We should be respected by the rest of the world. We should be free to make uh, whatever choices we want. Uh, to, to, as long as we don't break any laws, we should be able to just do whatever we want. And along the way, I'll try to be a, Jesus, a decent Jesus follower too. But then we open up our Bibles and we discover what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And Paul says, no, your number one identity is not that you are an American who happens to be a follower of Jesus. You are a follower of Jesus who happens to be an American. You are, you are a citizen of heaven. He says, so, so live like you are a citizen of of heaven. You have duties and responsibilities as citizens of heaven, living in fellowship with each other and with our Savior. And then he goes on to describe our, our heavenly citizenship three different ways. And I'll give you those three, then we'll kind of unpack it in the passage here. He says, stand together and to strive together and if need be, suffer together. That's what it looks like when we're all citizens of heaven on the same page, going the same direction. Stand together, strive together, and if need be, suffer together. First of all, he says, stand together. Let's read our verse 27 again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. The word there, standing or stand, it's a military word. It means stand your ground, defend your position. 
Stand for the Lord. Stand against Satan. Stand for the truth. Stand against falsehood. Stand for righteousness. Stand against sin. And, and you are standing fast, meaning your feet, it's a just shortened word, or shortened form of the word fasten. Yeah, your feet are planted. They're fastened to the ground. Stand fast, he says, in one spirit. Not the Holy Spirit here, but the human spirit, meaning, meaning as a, as a fellowship of believers, oneness of purpose and oneness of direction and oneness of priority. He said, I want to hear that you are standing fast in one spirit. You're all citizens of heaven. So he said, live like that. And one way you do that, he said, you stand fast in one spirit, standing together. Then he says, talks about striving together. He said, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Just as standing was a military word, striving is an athletic term. It means to compete, to, to, to struggle in competition with your team in a team sport. Striving together for the faith of the gospel, not being intimidated by our adversaries. That's what he means. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. The word, the verb there simply means to be, to be intimidated by them. And he says that the, the adversarial opposition to the gospel is proof that they are unsaved. Proof that they are on the path to hell. Proof that they are on the broad road that leads to destruction, as Jesus called it. Their opposition to us as, who are preaching the gospel also proves that we who are striving together for the gospel are saved. You know, we've had such peace and prosperity in our country for so many generations, thank God for that, that often we aren't, we aren't quite sure what to do with opposition or persecution. We aren't quite sure how to, exactly how to handle it. read a story this last week of uh, the well-known evangelist John Wesley, late 1700s. He was riding his horse to the next town to preach. And the thought came to him as he was riding along on his horse, you know, I haven't been harassed or persecuted in, in any way for like three days. Hmm. I wonder if I'm really right with God. I wonder if I'm preaching the right things. You know, he did. He stopped his horse immediately. He stopped his horse, got off with the reins in his hands. He knelt down by the roadside and started praying, searching his heart. Lord's everything right between me and you. Well, he hadn't started praying too long, and some rascal from a nearby town came by, kind of recognized the fairly well-known preacher, got off his horse and picked up a rock and threw it at him, cur just cursing him all the way. Cursing, blankety blank, the preacher. The rock barely, he kind of hit the ground, barely missed John Wesley. He jumped up, jumped back up on his horse, said, Hallelujah, praise God, I'm still on the right track. <laughs> you know, the, the devil hates the gospel. And, and, and if we never have any opposition from any adversary for any reason, maybe we should check to see if we're striving together for the faith of the gospel. As I said, we have, we've had such peace and prosperity in our country for so long, we, we, we hardly know what to do with opposition. I mean, if, it, if it's out there, it's mostly just verbal, you know, but, uh, but yet uh, here, here's John Wesley thinking, man, you know, nobody's cussed me out in three days. Nobody's thrown rocks at me for three days. I wonder if I'm still right with God. And, and as we think of this sort of, of striving together, picture this, this great choir, uh, each choir member singing in perfect harmony, perfect sync with each other. 
That way they kind of sound like, like one voice rather than 50 different voices, each one trying to do their own thing. You know, researchers in Sweden a number of years ago, another study, interesting, from, from 2013, they found that the heart rates of choir members actually synchronize when they sing together. Using pulse monitors attached into the singer's ears, these researchers from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, they measured the changes in the choir members' heart rates as they navigated all the various harmonies of, the, of this old Swedish hymn they were singing. When the choir began to sing, all their heart rates kind of slowed down, but what really surprised the researcher was just in a matter of just 10, 10 15 seconds, just a, 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 a relatively short time, all the singers' heart rates kind of became synchronized. The readout from the pulse monitor started this jumble of jagged lines and then quickly became this uniform peaks, like all their hearts were beating in sync as they sang. The heart rates fell into this shared rhythm, kind of guided by the song's tempo. Interesting, interesting study, University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And I thought, wow, wow, what a, what a picture of the way the local church is supposed to function. When we come together as one great choir, with one spirit, with one soul, and our hearts are in sync, and we make God's praise glorious. Not that we're all going to be singing in unison, because God makes each of us different, but we will be singing in harmony as we work together to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul said, when I, when I come, or if I don't ever make it there, I want to hear about you, that, that you are standing together, and that you are striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he said, I might even hear that you're suffering together. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. That verb phrase there, has been granted. It's a verb form of the noun grace. A gracious gift. Paul says you, you have been graced to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have also been graced to suffer for Him. It, it, it is a gift from God, not only to come to Christ, and for Him to open our eyes to see the truth and we put our faith in Christ, but it's also a gift from God, Paul says, to be able to endure hardship and challenges. It has been granted to you, it has been graced to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, and you have the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. It's a British medical doctor who worked for uh, many years in the 19, late 1940s up through the early 1960s. Her name was Helen Rosevere. She worked as a, as a missionary doctor in the Belgian Congo. During the Simba Rebellion, the communist overthrow of the Belgian Congo when it became Zaire in uh, 1964, I believe, she was captured. Many missionaries were killed. She was captured, faced brutal beatings, other forms of physical torture. On one occasion, when she thought she was about to be executed, it turned out she wasn't, but she thought she was about to be executed, she began to think that God had forsaken her. And in that moment, as she was praying and feeling so discouraged and like God had just left her, 
She said she just she she wrote about this later because she was eventually released. She she sensed that the Holy Spirit was just kind of whispering to her. Twenty years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what this means. These are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. All I'm asking of you is the loan of your body. The privilege of serving Christ through her sufferings overwhelmed Dr. Rosevere. After she was miraculously delivered from her captors, she wrote a book about her experience with God. She said in her book this, He didn't stop the sufferings. He didn't stop the wickedness, the cruelties, the humiliation, or anything. It was all there. The pain was just as bad. The fear was just as bad. But it was altogether different. Because it was for Jesus, in Jesus, and with Jesus. See, our our pain and our suffering is a gift of God's grace which allows us to share in Christ's sufferings. And it's not pain that we inflict on ourselves, as many do during the Easter season, but this is persecution from the outside for the cause of Christ. God never said, hurt yourself for me. He said, other people might hurt you, but don't, you don't have to hurt yourself for Christ. But a lot of times persecution, when it comes to us, it comes to us from outside, not things we inflict on ourselves. And, and it brings us into, the, into this intimate fellowship with Jesus himself because our suffering allows us to share something with him that no one else shares. It is our suffering for the cause of Christ. And and not only does our pain bring us closer to Christ, it also brings us closer to each other. As Paul said, you are having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Now he said, you're having the same conflict. It, It just draws us closer together. We've all suffered for Christ. So when Paul writes, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's calling us to a radically different way of living. We live differently with different values and different priorities because we are forgiven and we belong to a different kingdom. We are citizens of heaven with a Savior who has brought good news that's for all people. Jesus has come. The way to be made right with God is now available. There there is a new, eternal, sustaining, freeing, joy-filled citizenship in heaven that is offered freely to each person who will come to Christ. So i got two questions for you as we wind up our thoughts today. Number one, are you a citizen of heaven? Do, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you absolutely certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are headed for heaven because you've put your faith in Christ? If you, if you are, you are, you are a citizen of heaven. You belong to the kingdom of God. Which brings me to my next thought. Are you living like you're a citizen of heaven? Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live like a citizen of heaven. Live like you belong to the kingdom of God. Standing together, striving together, and if need be, suffering together for the gospel of Christ. That is our number one identity in this world, on this planet. We are citizens 
of heaven. We belong to Jesus Christ. Everything else, every other identity we have should take second place to that one identity. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us for being so connected to this world that we forget where we belong. We get so connected to our nationalities and our ethnic connections and our social connections and our financial status that we, that we forget whose kingdom we actually belong to. And it's not, Lord, that we ignore those other identities. We are Americans. We are fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. And we all have jobs and careers and employment. And we all have, we all have many identities. But Lord, help us to remember that our number one identity is that we are a follower of Jesus. Because we know, Lord, we can be that any place on this planet. And we are to be that every place on this planet. Help us to live like we belong to you. Help us to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Help us, we pray, in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.